Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Joe Green, it's his like eighth or ninth time on my show. That means I like talking to you, but you also know a lot, Joe. You have areas of information and so many different subjects. It's actually pretty astonishing. Um, Joe, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Pleasure to be back. How's it going? We're going to be talking about Jonestown today, which is a subject I tried to dive into, but I tried to reach out to the family or the people that are remaining and um, they kept bouncing me around from person to person. And I was like, is nobody really wanting to talk about this? I would like to hear your guys' experience. And then they just ghosted me, which is fine. Uh, so hopefully we can learn a little bit about Jonestown. And you gave me that reaction and that face. So I got to ask what that's about. Um, that's about you are unlikely to be successful in that venture. Um, yeah, they're probably not going to talk to you. Um uh, a lot of the, uh, for very understandable reasons, uh, they don't want to go into this stuff. And there has been some documentaries made about Jonestown over the last 30 years or so. But I think there's one additional reason they may not talk to you. Um, because I know that right now in Hollywood, there are two um, movies in production, or at least in pre-production. Um, one is Leonardo DiCaprio's thing and i think joseph gordon levitt has one too um so two totally unrelated different projects i don't know to what extent like i don't know where they're at like if if leo is interested in something you know that there's a green light somewhere to make to make that picture um is it about jonestown yeah 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 he's he wants to play jim jones oh, and I, I assume joseph gordon levitt wants to play jim jones also but this is just reading the trade papers. So I, I you know, I don't know, I don't have details. But they, they these these two projects have appeared in the trades. That you know, in in some stage of pre-production. So when when a movie like that, let's say, let's say it becomes a go project at a certain point, um they're gonna start reaching out to anybody who is alive, witnesses, whatever, um, and they'll make deals with those people to either appear in some capacity or to serve as like research consultants or you know background information and that may be why they'd be that somebody even if they were willing to talk about this subject if they had already been contacted by you know leonardo DiCaprio's company they're not going to want to do anything to screw that up so they're gonna they may tell you no just on that basis that and i'm sure they probably get chalked into getting mistreated pretty badly by the press because of the situation that they were involved in yeah well i mean i don't know how i don't know that they've really been mistreated but you know it's not everybody wants to be in front of a camera and not everybody wants to be in front of the media you know and and, and i get that well how'd you come across jones sound like where did your research come from so what happened uh, in my situation is that I read an article. Um, I bought this book that was published by Feral House, uh, which was Adam Parfrey. It was called um, Secret and Suppressed. And in this book, it was just a series of articles about all kinds of different stuff. But the article I was most impressed with in that book was called The Black Hole of Guiana. And it was by a guy I'd never heard of before named John Judge. And... It was all about how the story of Jonestown is completely wrong and that basically everything that you know about Jonestown is incorrect. And I was just like, what? And this is like a 15-page article with like 170 footnotes. 
so I could look up everything that John was talking about in this in this article. And I just it just blew my head off. And that was kind of my entree into all of this, because that was the main thing that made me make the decision to look up John to discover that he was the head of something called the Coalition on Political Assassinations and to find out that they were having meetings every year in Dallas um, around the time of the Kennedy assassination. And after I found all that stuff out, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to take some vacation. I'm going to drive up to Dallas and I'm going to see what this is all about. And so I did that and I'm always early to stuff. And so I was there at like six o'clock in the morning, the day before the conference was due to start. And I went to the breakfast room at the hotel and John was sitting there. And I went and sat down, introduced myself, and we talked for like three and a half hours. And he just like, yeah. And at that point, I said, okay, well, I guess I'm helping John. And at that point, I just started helping him with the conferences and getting involved with everything COPA related, Coalition on Political Assassinations related. And that's what I did for the next several years. I know you did uh, like more extensive research into JFK because it interests you just like it interests me. But what about Jonestown? Did that interest you like the JFK stuff? I mean, Mark Lane's involved in there, which I'm sure we're going to end up talking about at some point about it. But I mean, how much of John Judge's article really sparked up an interest to actually go and try and look up more about Jonestown? I think you'd have to give me a breakdown of the official narrative and then what is wrong about it, because I just don't really know it. Like I said, it's an extended period away from you know me being born or my generation so trying to understand it now i just look up articles and i think everyone knows the reference like don't drink the kool-aid that's like somehow just gone across different uh, generations but i'm interested in what the official narrative was or official story was but also what was different and what was wrong about it yeah so that was the thing right so i i had grown up um hearing about Jonestown in a vague way. Like I didn't know any of the real details, uh, but I knew don't drink the Kool-Aid and I knew that it was a mass suicide. Right. And so when I read John's article, it was like, wait a minute, none of this happened. And so I started researching it on my own and eventually I had enough to produce a zine for microcosm, which is actually this one right here. It's just a little zine and it builds on John's work, and also Jim Hogan, who's a very good researcher also. you, uh, Jim Hogan wrote Spooks and Secret Agenda, really good writer, really good uh, journalist. And um, so let's, let's set, I guess let's set the table like you're talking about. Um, Jonestown is an incident that happened on November 18th, uh, 1978, in which there is a, there was a, a camp on the northeast corner of South America in a place called Guiana, okay? And that area is kind of a, it's like, a, it's jungle, very, very hot tropical climate. And the official story is that Jim Jones was a crazy cult leader who had a kind of quasi-religious camp up there and at a certain point, he ordered all of the people who followed him to kill themselves by drinking cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. And the official total of deaths is about 913. 
although it's always been a little bit squirrely about those numbers and we can get into that. But the, if you look at most official um, articles and things, they'll, they're going to cite 913 as the number of dead. Uh, and then Jim Jones then killed himself and it was a big tragedy. And it was yet another example of cults in the 70s and the late 60s uh, going south. And this is what happens when you're a crazy leftist and you get together in these crazy leftist cult groups. So you blame do you blame more of the crazy leftist side that led to that? Or do you blame more of like the charismatic Christianity that he was kind of using? Neither, really, um, because this the whole like all of the story is wrong, like every almost every detail of the story is wrong as it's been presented. Um, and part of what I did in my zine is I wanted to establish the historical precedent for Guiana. So some of the questions that really aren't looked at uh, in the Jonestown story and some of the things that I was curious about is like, why are they in Guiana? How did they get the land? Um, what were they doing? Like, what was the point of being in Guyana? Um, and what I found was, is that that area, the the little that little uh, part of of, um, of South America up there, is full of natural resources, um, uranium for one thing, but also like gold, silver, tin, bauxite. Uh, a lot of things that are useful to um, industry. And in fact, before Jim Jones had been there, uh, Union Carbide had owned that land for a while. Union Carbide, very notorious um, industrial plant. It was involved in uh, the deaths of numerous uh, Indian people in particular um, because of basically quality control. They, were, they didn't care about anything. Uh, and there have been various disasters that are associated with Union Carbide over the over the years. But I went way, way back. And what I found is that people have basically have been trying to colonize that part of South America for four or five hundred years, like going back to the 15th century. Uh, the Dutch had tried to get in there. And in fact, the Dutch West Indies Trade Company had been there. Um, in the early 17th century, around 1620 or so. <clears throat> and they had had the rights to do that. And they were there for on and off for about 200 years um, until the British got there in the early 19th century. Um, and they were, they, they were trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get at all of that materials. In the 15th century, it's mostly about sugar. But then gradually, as they started to dig more, they did, would discover more things like they're literally sitting on a gold mine there uh, at, at Guyana. So that was very interesting to me. So it's an area of uh, rich natural resources that different organizations have been trying to colonize for a very long time. And in fact, there have been various um, ideas about how to get people to stay there, because that's the problem, is that nobody wants to live there. If you were born there, that's one thing, but nobody wants to come there and actually work because the conditions are terrible um it's it's hot it's incredibly humid it's very difficult to do anything it's just you know it's just dreary and difficult and most human beings don't want to really stay there um and then i found something else that was interesting so i said that guiana is in south america so if you were saying like well what's what's the population of guiana 
like what is the largest racial component uh, of the population of Guyana, you would probably say people from South America, right? Um, and there are native, there are indigenous tribes, there are the Arawaks, and there's a couple of others, but they they are not the primary racial component of Guyana. To this day, uh, if you take a cross section of the population of Guyana, the largest percentage are Africans from Africa. And the second largest are Indians, largely from the area of Calcutta in India, not American Indians or not indigenous people, but Indians from India. And the reason for both of those populations is slavery. Because what they tried to do is they tried to import African slaves to work on that area to get at that, the stuff I'm talking about, the natural resources. And then at a certain point in 1838, I believe it is, um, Great Britain made slavery illegal, technically. And so they started bringing in, in Indian indentured servants to work on the area. And, so the, and that affected the population from then on. So the largest population in Guyana is Afro-Guyanese, and the second largest is Indo-Guyanese, which is crazy. But it has to do with colonization and slavery. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I, so uh, wait, wait, so when you found that research, like when you looked in deeper, like where, where'd you go for resources? Um, I was looking through mostly historical, for, for that part, historical resources. So um extant papers at the time like i try to you always so whenever you're doing research like this um the best thing to always look at is primary sources whatever you can find yeah and it, in this case it made it more difficult because a lot of those are in spanish obviously um so i'm having and my spanish is it's okay but trying to read 17th century spanish you know, that's more my pop can do that but I, i'm i'm not very good at it um so i'm looking for stuff in translation um, but there's also been some decent histories that have been written of the area because so there's nothing to there there are when it, when how am I trying to put this <laughs> a lot of American history you have to be really careful and you have to parse very carefully because they're protecting things yeah. they're going to say certain things they're not going to say other things but in this case the histories that were written of the area weren't particularly trying to protect one thing or another and so they could be honest about the history of colonization. Um, so you can find pretty good sources on the internet even for this stuff. Um, and that's the advantage that I had over John Judge, which is that John Judge is having to go through nothing but old papers, whereas I can do that, but I can also use the internet because it wasn't, you know, it's much, it's much more developed than it was at the time that he wrote. In fact, I think he wrote this article like in the eighties, maybe the, maybe the early nineties. Um, so he didn't know this. He didn't know about the history of Guyana going back 500 years. But I found that fascinating because that made it, that gave it a reason for Jim Jones to be there. Like what, you know, now it makes sense. And then you come to find out that the guy who purchased the land for Jim Jones uh, is a guy named George Philip Blakey, whose background is in British and American intelligence, among other things. In other words, he's connected to the Central Intelligence Agency. And then you go, oh, that's interesting. Um, so is, does that set the scene a little bit 
yeah, right now. I mean, it, a lot of my material, like interest and kind of focus where I was looking, I, I like the research side of me likes like those questions about where you're getting the sources and research from. Because when I was looking into the J- J- uh, Jonestown stuff, everything I was going on the FBI website, looking at the number of documents and files they have on there, listening to some of the audio tapes and kind of trying to understand what was going on down there. But when we talk about Jim, how did Jim Jones know? So it was that person that bought him land, but how did he become connected with that guy who bought him land? Like, how did he know, like, we're going to go to Guyana? I mean, if the conditions are crap, how do you get 900 something people to move down there? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it, every, every question leads to another, like what? Yeah. And that's the way his whole life is. So Jim Jones was born in Indiana, uh, 1931, if I remember right. And he was the son of a Ku Klux Klan member. And he was born into a revival tent religious family. So when he was a little kid, he they would set up a tent. I don't know if you've ever seen those or been to one. Um, but the, the kid would preach to people and they'd have snakes and he would speak in tongues oh, the and snake stuff, all, all that crazy stuff. Yes. Um, so that's how he grew up. And apparently they knew he, he was apparently very charismatic from a child because he's well, we'll get there as we go through his life. You'll see what I'm talking about, about his, his ability to, to talk people into stuff. The other, the other thing that he was doing when he was a kid, as he became a teenager, and I think you can find videos of this on YouTube also. He was really into animals and he started selling monkeys to different universities for use in their projects. And some of those universities that were buying those animals for him appear in the list of MKUltra related universities. So the universities that were doing different psychological projects um, for MKUltra. Harvard, Yale. And- well, mostly in the Midwest, but yes, those, I mean, those definitely appear, but all kinds of universities. Appear. One of them is uh, Indiana. It's not the university of Indiana. I think it's Indiana something. And I don't remember exactly. Um, but for example, that university bought like $400,000 worth of LSD from the Eli Lilly company, which is a story you've probably heard. Um, so at the same time that's going on, he's selling monkeys which is also i mean what 16 year old sells monkeys to universities for experimentation like how did that happen i don't know where did you get um, the monkeys well there, apparently there were a monkey there they, they liked animals like there were there were different um uh like uh i don't know what the, the word is not a zoo but sometimes uh people will have private zoos uh especially you know in those days you maybe get exotic animals because you want to have them in your in your ranch, like some rich guy. Um, that's how tigers infested Texas. Yeah, that's exa- that's it's exactly where I was going. So there are more tigers apparently in Texas than there are anywhere else in yeah, the world. Yeah, all the wilds of the world. Because all these Texas lunatics, you know, are macho and they want to have tigers running around. Well, Jim Jones developed connections in that regard, and then he was able to turn that into selling. Um, them to universities. But the other thing that Jim Jones had going for him was that he was best friends with a guy named Dan Mitrioni. And Dan Mitrioni is one of the most notorious people in 20th century history. Dan Mitrioni, um, what he ended up doing was working for the CIA, specifically 
Mitrioni's specialty was to teach Latin American police departments how to torture uh, revolutionaries as part of counter-revolutionary tactics. So you're having trouble in Brazil or you're having trouble in Venezuela with uh, a peasant revolution. So he would go and he would teach them, uh, the police officers, how to put electrodes on somebody's testicles um, to make them talk or just to torture them into, you know, getting the idea that it's a bad idea to raise up against the state. And this was Mitrioni's specialty. He loved doing it. And he started doing that very young. And everywhere Mitrioni goes, Jim Jones goes with him, which again is very strange. Okay. And they're best buddies since they were kids. And yet 30 years later, they're adults. Like in 1961, Dan Mitriani goes to Brazil and Jim Jones tags along. Do you think Jim Jones somehow got connected with the CIA or any of these agencies, but like on a actual, like you're getting projects done and things getting, or do you think that they manipulated them? Because if you listen to some of his audio files, he talks about that he believes that he's been infiltrated or his group's been infiltrated. So am I, am I just novice brain? I kind of just went, I mean, did they do like a COINTELPRO thing with Jim Jones and his group or they made them all kind of stir up and go crazy and it led to that? Or was it something different? But I'm sure we'll get to that. Well, yeah, no, your, your instincts are right on. So, and it's not a hundred percent clear and, and I'm still not a hundred percent clear um, because you're right. You can listen to those uh, because he used to talk on the loudspeakers all the time. And he would, he would talk about um, in particular, he would mention this guy by name. The uh, CIA director in Guyana was a guy named Richard Dwyer. And he would say, you know, oh, Richard Dwyer is coming to get us and the CIA is trying to kill us and all that stuff. Um, let me let me table that for a minute and we'll come back to that. Um, but you're right. He, he would talk in those terms like the CIA was coming to get him. But yet it looks like he's some kind of CIA operative. Now, is he a willing? Does he know he's a CIA operative? I don't know. That's a good question. But the story gets interesting and, and, and gets muddier because in 1965, um, Jim Jones goes to a place called Ukiah, California, which is sort of Northern California. And there he's able to start up a, a ranch, sort of like a clinic, sort of. And what he's got on this thing, he has elderly people, he has very, very sick people, and he has children. So this is like a kind of, um, it's like a trial run for what's going to become Jonestown. Um, and he has no medical background whatsoever. He has no certifications. He has no professional qualifications whatsoever. So how does he make this happen? I don't know. He gets money. He has Dan Mitrione helping him. And somehow he's able to start this, this camp in Ukiah. Also around this time, um, there starts to be rumors about people disappearing that people that have a disagreement with Jim Jones either are found dead or they disappear and are never found. And a couple of reporters get onto him and they try to report on it. And they do. Um, there are a couple of articles that are kind of questioning articles like, you know, what's going on in Ukiah? Um, but they're never really followed up, um, possibly because those reporters may have been threatened. Um, and the reason I say that is because there's a reporter later on that we know when we know her name, um, who was on to Jim Jones also. 
and um, she was threatened. But that was later. So the other thing you have to know about Jim Jones during this period, 65 to 68, is that we know, I told you his dad was a Ku Klux Klan member. He's a revival tent preacher. He's super rabidly right wing. Like he's one of these guys that just is crazy right wing. And he works for um, different politicians. So he was turning out the vote for Richard Nixon. Um, he was turning out the vote for uh, Ronald Reagan when he was running for governor of California all kinds of different right-wing causes. At a certain point during this period, he suddenly goes from being rabidly right-wing to being a left-wing Democrat. And when he becomes a left-wing Democrat, he suddenly has access to all of these major players in American political history in California. And the key to that is a guy named Timothy Stone. Timothy Stone was the assistant district attorney of San Francisco. And somehow he meets Jim Jones and he's so impressed with Jim Jones that he takes him to meet all of his friends. And they include uh, George Moscone, um, Walter Mondale. I've heard that name before. Walter Mondale uh, was a long-term politician. He ran for president against Ronald Reagan in 1980 as a Democrat. Um, he got introduced to Willie Brown. Willie Brown is a name that you probably remember because on 9-11, Willie Brown was given a warning not to fly on that day. Oh, yeah. That Willie Brown. Okay. This is, this is old school San Francisco politics. These are all people that are involved. Harvey Milk. Oh shit! No, really, I've done an episode on him. Yeah, he yes, got, he Jim just Jones killed. Is interested yeah. to Harvey Milk, and Harvey Milk thinks he's the greatest thing ever. Damn. He loves the guy. Yes, and in fact, there is money at when the People's Temple is established. There is money going back and forth from San Francisco to Jonestown, uh, and some of that is going through Harvey Milk's office. I wish you wouldn't have told me that. Yeah, yeah. What I'm the hell's going? on? I was trying to fight for justice on his account because the crazed guy that killed him said that he was on hot dogs and Coca-Cola craze. Yes, was, Twink, yeah. the Twinkie defense. He became yeah. famous as the Twinkie defense, Dan White. Um, we'll talk about Dan White in a little while, too. So 1976, uh, this guy, George Phil Blakey, buys the land, $650,000, and that's just the down payment. So you got to think, $650,000 in 1976 – I don't know how much that is in today's dollars, but it's millions. So somebody's able to get this money together to buy the land for Jonestown to go there. And um, so some of the other facts about Jonestown that also make things very hanky, right? Um, the people who are running Jonestown are largely white men and a couple of the locals. The people who are doing the work at Jonestown are 90% black and about 85% female. So almost all the workers at Jonestown are black women. And this is not stressed at all in reporting. What's, this, what's the significance of them being? Because when they were flying the people in, when they would get a new group of people, they would tie them up and they were beaten with sticks before they were ever put to work. 
once they started working, it was a cult environment in the sense that when they were working and then sometimes when they were sleeping, Jim Jones has these loudspeakers and he's talking the whole time, blah, blah, blah. This is what's going to happen. What I'm getting at is that the people who come to, to Jonestown are not coming voluntarily. They're essentially kidnapped and brought there and forced to work. It's a concentration camp. So it's not a cult, right? They're trying to create cult conditions, but it's not like people are going, oh, I want to join Jonestown. Although Jonestown got a lot of good press. And a lot of that good press came from individuals that we that we mentioned before. Um, well, one of them we haven't yet. One was Donald Freed. And Donald Freed was very much a leftist hero. Um, he's a great writer. He wrote a play called Secret Honor that Robert Altman turned into a, a movie that's terrific about Richard Nixon. Um, he also co-wrote the screenplay for Executive Action, which was the first JFK conspiracy movie in the late 60s with Burt Lancaster. But Donald Freed also said that Jonestown was the next step in Martin Luther King's dream. He said this publicly. He said this in numerous news reports. The other guy who was doing a lot of PR for Jonestown was Mark Lane. And you have to look at Mark Lane's history, right? So Mark Lane is the guy when Marguerite Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald's mother, publicly requested a lawyer to come forward to help her son, Mark Lane said, yeah, I'll do that. And then, of course, he wrote Rush to Judgment, which was the bestseller about the Kennedy assassination. Um, and it inspired numerous people to go and search and do digging into the Kennedy assassination. Mark Lane, big hero. From then... He became James Earl Ray's lawyer. And there was a very strange incident that happened during that time. So if you know anything about the Martin Luther King assassination, there, was, there were a pair of witnesses that were in the rooming house. It was, and one of them was called, her name was Grace Walden Stevens. And the other was her husband. Her husband was drunk, out like a light and did not see anything but he told the authorities that he had seen james earl ray in the rooming house grace walden stevens was not drunk she was awake and she was paying attention and she said i didn't see anybody who matches james earl ray's description so naturally the authorities uh used her husband as a witness and sent her to a sanitarium at a certain point um she was in a hospital Mark Lane and a couple other people busted her out of the hospital. They were able to rescue Grace Walden Stevens. Oh, Grace Walden Stevens was a black woman. The reason this becomes important later. Except that when Mark Lane then rescues Grace Walden Stevens, the first thing he wants to do is send her to Jonestown. And one of the people that's with him suggests that Grace Walden Stevens should use an ID from somebody who is deceased so that she doesn't have to go under a real name. I don't know Grace Walden for that. Does are all these politicians, do they all know what's going on at Jonestown? Or is this something like conditioning? Like, I mean, do they think that they were going to a safer spot? I mean, Mark Lane, I know he was fired by Margaret Oswald. Um, and I, I know he ended up in Jonestown. I just didn't know the how he got there. But I, I mean, all these people, they are 
kind of heroes in the research community, especially if you talk about JFK and a lot of the people like Harvey Milk, for instance, I never would have suspected anything bad about him for the amount of stuff I've learned about him from the more political kind of side being first gay, you know, out, 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 not congressman, but senator out there or someone who's he running for office. Yeah, head of the um he wasn't he wasn't a senator. They have a like a board there in San Francisco, the San Francisco Board of Examiners. And he so he became uh, the uh, the head of that. Um, so he was he was the first guy to hold office like but that. But yeah, and, leading political motive motions is what I'm saying, like holding at least a high establishment part. But I mean, I, I just don't I, all these people, like I said, I've learned a different side. So it's hard to think that all these people would knowingly do something especially what we know with Jonestown and how it ended or how it allegedly ended. So um, you're right. And I don't know, but I do know certain things like, for example, George Moscone was so impressed with Jim Jones that in 1965, he put him in charge of the San Francisco housing authority. Why would he do that? Jim Jones has no expertise, no credentialing, nothing. What's the housing authority do? Housing authorities, the, the people who make decisions about um, like um, in, in your city and in my city, there are people who give like public housing, for example, like Section 8 housing, what is now called Section 8 housing, who make decisions about that. Um, zoning can sometimes be an issue with all that. So it's a significant amount of authority to give somebody, to put somebody in that. You wouldn't just, I mean, well, I mean. In Texas, sometimes it's somebody's cousin. But the idea is you're supposed to have somebody who knows what they're doing in, in the housing authority. Um, so why does he do this? And the answer is, I don't know. And the answer to all the other questions is, I don't know. Like, does Walter Mondale, does Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife, who also meets Jim Jones, does she think he's legit? I don't know. What I do know, it's very weird. And the person that's introducing him to all these people is Timothy Stone, who again, assistant district attorney of San Francisco, not a nobody, right? Why is he doing this? I don't know. Do they, do those, any of these politicians have a large religious background? Not really, no. I mean, they, some of them do, some of them do something dumb, but not, I mean, Mondale doesn't, Rosalind Carter, I guess, sort of, um, they were, they were Baptists, Southern Baptists. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. And I think, Two things. Jim Jones is extremely charismatic, right? He can convince people to do things. And two, he has a lot of financial and also uh, reputational support. There are people vouching for this guy. And why are they doing that? I don't know. But yeah, you're right. It's a big question as to how much people know about what's actually happening. I'm going to give you one more little tidbit. Um, May Brussel had been following Jim Jones for years and Dan Mitrioni. Um, Dan Mitrioni eventually is murdered himself. Um, and he, he's murdered by some people that were mad about the fact that he kept training all these police in Latin America to go after them. And he himself, Dan Mitrioni, was tortured to death. And a gentleman named Costa Gavras, a very famous director, made a film about Dan Mitrioni's life called State of Siege. Um, he's the guy who made Z, very important political film in the 60s. Um, anyway, so that's Dan Mitrioni. But Mae Brussel has been looking at Jim Jones for a while. She does a show in August 
I think it's August of 1977. I spell out exactly which episode it was in, in my zine. Um, but May says on the air that she believes that Jonestown is a place where the Central Intelligence Agency are training assassins. This is more than a year before Jonestown blows up. Jonestown is not on anyone's radar. Like there, there are no, there's essentially no news coverage about Jonestown prior to 1978. I mean, a little bit, but not like it's not in the national news. It's not a big story. It's nothing. But May sees this over a year before it happens. And specifically, she says, a CIA training uh, facility for assassins. And the reason that's interesting also is because at Jonestown, everything was kind of dumpy. Like they didn't, they didn't have great quarters to live, except they had this incredible hospital. And in that hospital, they kept huge amounts of doses of drugs that were used in MKUltra. They had like a thousand doses of Thorazine, uh, injectable Valium, thousands and thousands of doses. They had enough chemicals, they had enough drugs at Jonestown to medicate every single person in, in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown if they wanted to. They could have drugged everybody in the city. That's how much they had. Why do they have this stuff? Did anybody investigate that and bother why they had so many drugs there? I mean, no. It gets reported after the fact, after Jonestown blows up, but nobody does the legwork to see, well, like, where did he get it? Mm. How did he get it? Who's paying for it, right? All this stuff. A lot of these questions go completely unanswered. Well, like Dr. Ewan Cameron in Canada, who did a lot of the MKUltra experiments, he never questioned where the money or funding was coming from for half of his experiments. I mean, why would you if the money keeps coming in, right? But, you know, you find out that those could be traces to Central Intelligence Agency and other things that were supplying him for the drugs to use for his experimentation. I don't necessarily think that they're creating assassins, maybe. Well, you'll tell me something that will uncover that. But at right now, from what I'm thinking, it just sounds like they're finding a way to like condition people. I mean, I was my next question I was going to ask you was, did Jim Jones ever visit an asylum? Because it seems like the people that he's picking happen to be either low impoverished people, um, people that if they went missing, nobody would really bat an eye. I mean, when you type in Jonestown and search up articles on it or just look up anything on it, you hear the main senators, guys who were also involved in Jonestown who died. You see their names, but you don't see the other however many people that passed away. You just hear a number. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. And you're absolutely right about why they were selected. There's no question. Um, that That is definitely what was happening. Whether the CIA was... Is that sarcasm? No, no, okay. no. You're All right, just making sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You, you, Whenever you're investigating these things, are you ever going to know 100% what happened? Not usually, like not even the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I think I have a pretty good handle on what happened, but do I know 100% every day? No, I don't. Because a lot of this stuff is hidden and, and you're dealing with real life. And proof is not really a thing that applies to real life, right? Proof is for math. You don't really get proof in this life. You get substantive evidence and that's all you can, that's all you can do. But everything, everything points to agency involvement in this whole thing. And there's no point to doing this. I mean, who else is interested in this stuff? 
Like we know that the Central Intelligence Agency was extremely interested in mind control. And we know that they were developing all sorts of programs. And we know that most of that material is no longer available because the director, Richard Helms, destroyed it on purpose and then testified that that's what he did and got fined. You know, that was his that was big punishment. He got fined for for saying that. I believe a lot of this is multifactorial Kennedy stuff, multifactorial. Everything's got a possible outcomes. So I don't ever think it's one definitive answer. But if you look at and just as from what I'm gathering, if you notice what Mark Chapman was involved with with John Lennon, he was involved with the YMCA, which is like a largely religious group. I'm starting to pick up the sense that the easiest way for the government to be able to test out programs and run projects without anybody's question is by using religious groups as some of their victims. And these people would in turn create their own victims or do their own bidding under the service of the CIA. Whether they were knowing or not, I don't know. But I think that if you really examine it, I mean, if you there's a stereotype of like they're religious kooks or they're religious nuts. Nobody questions someone on their religious thing when it really goes into like, hey, I'm moving to Guyana. Why? Oh, I mean this reli- this religious thing and group. And you're like, okay, um, I can't stop you, but I guess the church sucked in another one. You know, like it's something like that. So to me, that's just a great tactic from the government. If that's true, like that's my own speculation there. But no, 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 you're right. Um, so a lot of these organizations are then used as cover. Um, one of them, and I'm not going to go into detail about this because this would be a whole other thing. One is the Red Cross, right? The Red Cross mm. is frequently used as cover for because no one is supposed. It's got a big Red Cross, and no one is supposed to attack it. So even in war, if you want to smuggle something arms, drugs, people, trafficking, you can do it if you have access to the Red Cross. Well, they were so. building homes in Africa. Well, they do. And <laughs> and this is the thing. So these organizations provide cover. And one of them you just mentioned, uh, Mark David Chapman, right? Mark David Chapman was a member of World Vision. World Vision is another organization that was used as um, a supposedly a, an organization that's doing good around the world, but it's CIA front, right? Mark, Ta- Mark David Chapman worked for them. So did um, John Hinckley. And Jim Jones. Jim Jones was also connected to World Vision. So, yeah, if you wanted to do a whole thing just on World Vision, you would uncover all kinds of stones because there are these front organizations. And different companies have been front organizations throughout history. I mean, the whole thing about uh, the United Fruit Company, you know, in Guatemala, right? The United Front Company was essentially invented by the CIA for that purpose. And it became Chiquita Banana in the 80s. And they, did, they, did they deal in bananas? They did. But that wasn't their primary purpose. Their primary purpose was to gain entree into other countries to help with the overthrow of certain individuals. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was a CIA front in many countries. There's a whole story about that if you want to get into. So that doesn't mean that it's only a CIA front, but different companies are used for this purpose around the world because it's an easy way to do business. And the British did this too. This was like the whole, like if you read Graham Greene's novels, um, there's al- they're almost always about people who are like import export people. You know, they say, oh yes, they go to a country and they're, they're in import export, but they're actually British intelligence and they're spying on the country under the guise of being a businessman. So this is just a larger version of that. So yeah, Guiana looks for all the world 
like an intelligence operation. It looks like what they're doing is they're trying to find ways of controlling people, mass control, 100%. They've got drugs for that purpose. They've got a charismatic guy who's trying to convert them. But also, they really are trying to get at the materials in Guyana. So it's a dual purpose. Like it's a it's a mining camp and it's a concentration camp and it's a place to do these CIA experiments, I would argue. And the least risky route, if they're going to all this is going to be exposed and it all goes bad, the one that we're going to take notice would be the one with the people that all died in the camp of the cult instead of where they were mining and pulling out resources. Yes. And I'm trying to keep up. No, I know. And there and there are newspaper reports at the time. Well, not at the time, but after everything blows up, um, that that Charles Gary, Charles Gary was the other lawyer that was that was uh, working with Jim Jones. It was it was Mark Lane and Charles Gary. Uh, Charles Gary was a Black Panther lawyer. And Charles Gary said later that Mark Lane had been preying on Jim Jones's paranoia. That Mark Lane had been telling him, oh, yeah, the CIA is going to come get you. Really weird. There's also a story that Mark and Mark Lane said this. Mark Lane said, I knew more of what was going on than I let on. And in fact, he described one incident in which he had gone there with some people to visit the camp and they drugged the sandwiches for everybody. And he didn't tell anybody and he just didn't eat the sandwiches. That's pretty hard to defend. Mark Lane's coming out to be a piece of shit and hate to say it like that, but. Well, this is something that John and I used to talk about all the time. Um, And if you know anything about Mae Brussel, she never trusted Mark Lane. She hated Mark Lane. And she would say so on her show all the time. I've talked to many people who were close, who were in the, the garrison camp and close to Lane. And what most of them say is that Mark Lane liked the cameras too much. Like he was a brilliant guy. He said a lot of brilliant things. And when the media showed up, he got in front of the camera. So he liked, he liked being at the center of attention. The sinister part is later. And Mark Lane had things in his background, which made him very blackmailable. Um, I won't talk about what they are. If somebody wants to try and find them, you can find them as to why he might be blackmailable. But, and, and I have that stuff, but I, I don't want to go there. We'll save it for off air. I got to know about it. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, so anyway, yeah, so all this stuff is going on. All right. And I think that kind of sets the stage for, for, to get back to where you're going, which is about Leo Ryan. Leo Ryan is a congressman. He starts getting reports that there's a bunch of weird stuff going on at Jonestown. And this is the kind of guy Leo Ryan was. Um, One time, (laughs) he had gotten a bunch of reports about a local mental hospital that had been treating its um, um, patients very badly. So Leo Ryan got himself... Uh, incarcerated in that hospital 
to, to see for himself what the conditions were like under a phony name. So that's crazy. I mean, I applaud the guy for doing that, you know, but he's a little bit like he's willing to, to go to these lengths to try and find out what's really going on. God bless him. Well, he's been hearing this stuff. And then one day I mentioned Timothy Stone before to you, Timothy Stone, the assistant DA, right? Timothy Stone went to Jonestown and cut off contact with everybody, including his parents. And his parents were big shots. And they got, uh, uh, they, they got in a room with Leo Ryan and they said, hey, what the hell's going on? Um, my son has disappeared. He won't talk to us. I want to know what's happening at Jonestown. Okay. Um, they had talked to George Moscone too. George Moscone didn't do anything. Leo Ryan gets on a plane and flies to Guyana way out of his jurisdiction. But this, this is the kind of guy he is. Right. Um, and so he, when he went to go visit, they kind of put on a show for him. But in the, in the course of this show, uh, one of the people slipped him a note that said, you know, something like, please, for the love of God, get me out of here. And so Ryan knows. So he comes back. The second time that he comes to visit Guyana is November 18th, 1978. And at a certain point, um, things go very, very south. And he's trying to escape from, uh, he's trying to get off the tarmac and he's machine gunned to death along with several other people. And at that point, the jig is up, right? So once you've killed a congressman, there's nothing else you can do, and Jonestown's got to go. So that's when everything goes to pot. Now, supposedly, Jim Jones ordered all these people to kill themselves. Here's, here's some things that we, that we know. After the initial incident, it was reported that 400 people killed themselves at Jonestown. That number started to grow over the next few days until eventually it got to the 913 number that most people accept. It, doesn't, it still doesn't account for everybody because it was something like 1,200 people that needed to be accounted for. But 913 is the number they settled on. Um, when asked to explain how they mistook 400 people for 900, or rather 900 people for 400 people, it was suggested that the Guineas couldn't count. It was suggested that uh, there were adults that were covering up children or other bodies. If you look at the photographs, and the photographs are available, yeah. there are no bodies on top of bodies. Like yeah. that is not a true story. I, I, when I looked at the photos, it didn't look like there were 900 there. It looked like, I mean, I probably could maybe get a hundred or so, but I don't, I don't see 900. Oh, uh, there's a lot. Was, look at, keep, keep going with it. Cause there's a lot of photos and there is, there are a lot of people there. A lot of people covered in white sheets. It's trying to count the white sheets. there. just, I don't know. Maybe I'm not good at math. And they were left out for several, the bodies were left out for several days. So again, it's a tropical environment. So the bodies were in terrible condition by the time they were examined. Um, the Guyanese coroner was a guy named Dr. Mutu. Dr. Mutu was only able to examine a fraction of the bodies. For either for that reason or because he was prevented from doing so. It's not really clear. But what he found was that people had injection marks uh, on, on their back. 
so that they were being they were being injected from behind. He found that some people had been shot, and Timothy Stone specifically um, had been squirted in his mouth with a syringe full of poison. He did not find suicides. He thought that there were a handful of suicides, but his finding was that they were murdered, that this is not a, a site of murders. And in fact, even if the story were true, like don't drink the Kool-Aid, which wasn't even Kool-Aid, it was Flavor-Aid. It was the cheap version of, yeah. of Kool-Aid. But even if people had done that, they were done under duress, right? If I point a gun at you and I say, drink this tea and you drink it, that's not a suicide. Right. That's a murder by another mean. It's either, you know, you can either drink this or I'm going to shoot you in the head. OK, so that those are all murders. They're, they're not suicides. Jim Jones, the body is found. He has a shot to his temple, but the gun is 200 feet away. So it's not really clear what happened there. Well, he it's shot also, himself in the head and then threw it and then threw the gun yeah, <laughs> as, as one does, you know, as one does. Um but it's not even clear that it's Jim Jones because Jim Jones had doubles, much like Saddam Hussein and other people. Um, and it's not 100% that Jim Jones even died that day. Most people think they did, and I don't really have an opinion on it. Um, but there is a level of doubt as to whether Jones actually died. Um, there's also tapes that purport to be from that day that show the chaos and confusion. Um, it's very possible that those are legitimate. Uh, it's also possible that, that that's a tape from rehearsal because there were they used to do rehearsals of what would happen if we all if the camp has to go. And so there are there are tapes that show that that they're screaming and hollering and all this stuff. Um, but nothing's actually happening. So is that the case? Again, I don't know. A lot of these questions end up being unresolved because of the nature of the case. But what did not what absolutely did not happen is don't drink the Kool-Aid. So the question becomes, and the most important question to me, we have a Guyanese coroner, the guy who actually examined the bodies, who says that he didn't find very many suicides. And yet, within a few months, every news organization in the world agrees that don't drink the Kool-Aid is what happened. How is that possible? Mockingbird. Right. But with the suicides, you said very little suicides. So there were suicides? Well, there were ones that were inconclusive. There were ones that Dr. Mutu said were he he wasn't sure that they could have theoretically been suicides. But he thought that he projecting out that he thought that it would be less than 5%. That primarily what he saw were people that had been injected from the back and that had been shot. Um, but again, you can't confirm whether they're actually suicides for the reason that I gave before. Even if somebody drank poison, you don't know under what circumstances. Did they really want to drink the poison? Did they know there was poison in it? Because they had done rehearsals previously where they had put like Valium. And so they would drink the, the thing and then they would pass out. So is that the case? Again, we don't know. 
I think the but, way the official story says is that if they drank that, they were going to go to some better place or some afterlife. Like you hear that with the People's Temple in that place in Mexico or wherever it was where they all um, put bags over their heads and sat in beds, which is, just sounds far off. Like to sit there for two hours or two days or however long it was with a bag on top of your head and fresh Nikes. That just sounds weird. I agree. And, and I don't think that um, and John Judge has talked about this. I have not done as much work as John did in other mass suicides. But J.J. always said that whenever he looked into a supposed mass suicide, they, it turned out to be a mass murder. They, they, most people are not even even very religious fanatic type people. It's pretty hard to get a bunch of people to kill themselves. Yeah. Um, and the way that you're going to maybe do it is with MKUltra type drugs to put people in a state of mind where they might be very, very susceptible to believing that they're going to go to heaven. I don't see any evidence that any of those people thought that at Jonestown. If you've been kidnapped and put into a concentration camp and beaten up all the time and had to endure these, these, uh, these, these cult things where you're, you're doing rehearsals for death and people are pointing guns at you all like, that's, that's not a suicide and it's not a religiously motivated suicide. It's it's people that have been have had their wills broken through repeated torture. What was the aftermath of that when that was reported? Finally, like how long did it take till media reported on all the deaths and it started to become more known? And then was there ever any official statements from any congressman or anybody publicly, politically? There were, and um, and they um, so within it, like I say, the early reporting was that it was four hundred, and then it became nine hundred. And then you would still see. So when I was researching this, I was going through newspapers from all over the place and I would find stories that pointed out some of this stuff. There's a pretty good article and I, I think it's the Miami Herald. I don't I don't have it in front of me um, that talked about Dr. Mutu's findings in the case that this is the coroner. He said there he didn't find really many, very many suicides. He said they're almost all murders. It says how many bodies he was able to examine and why. But that story is never followed up on. So in most of these incidents, what you find is that you have to look at the early reporting because some of the truth gets out in that early reporting before the story freezes and closes up. Where everybody agrees on the narrative. Where everybody agrees on the narrative. And in this particular case, the narrative is completely contrary to the narrative on the ground by the officials who are conducting the investigation. See, that's what makes it different, right? In the Kennedy assassination, it's a cover-up almost right from the start. In Guyana, these are people working, I mean, they're working under terrible conditions, but they're trying to get, get out the truth and they're just doing their jobs. And then there's a cover-up and that cover-up comes externally. In other words, the American press starts reporting that, you know, don't think, drink the Kool-Aid within a few months of, of Jonestown. And that's what the story becomes, even though the testimony of the trial in the corner is not that. So that implies a level of control that even dwarfs stuff like the Kennedy assassination. And that, I think, is a very key part of this whole story. How does that become the story in the teeth of the facts? This isn't like the magic bullet, right? 
the magic bullet was invented to deal with the fact that they only had three shots. And the early reporting of the Kennedy assassination doesn't report the magic bullet. I wrote an article about that. There were articles written that didn't have, they didn't talk about the magic bullet because it hadn't been invented yet, right? This is different. This is the people, the, the officials at the scene are not uh, in on the conspiracy yet at the very beginning. The conspiracy comes afterwards. I'm so like, it's just, it's very confusing. It's making me rethink when I reached out to those people because I was reaching out to the people of Jonestown thinking that it's probably got to be embarrassing. I'm sure they get a lot of crap. Like, how could you be lured into some cult and then drink Kool Aid? But then when you're the way you're kind of explaining, it, it makes me rethink, like, you know, these people have been probably trying to talk about the truth and really what really went down. And next thing you know, you have, or are those fake people? I mean, did everybody make it out of Jonestown? I, did some people end up leaving? Well, Mark Lane was one of them. He said that he tore his underwear up and left a like Hansel and Gretel trail in the jungle so he wouldn't get lost. What? I'm not making. Yes, he, that's what he said in his book. I don't buy. I don't buy that at all. And you tell me, that that sounds absurd. And it also is absurd because Mark Lane, and I, and I've I've said this on another show, but if I had been in Jonestown, right? I'm a little guy. I'm not a combat expert. I'm going to be dead. Mark Lane is a lot closer to me than he is to some, to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. I don't, I don't, I find it very hard to believe that he got out. Yes, I do. Cause not very many people got out. Can I Almost ask, every Buzzy, can I ask about Jim Jones's message on the TV? in this kind of very convincing and kind of preachiestic way of luring. How did he get all these people involved into Jonestown or, or however many? There's, there's an, there's an essential mystery. Um, he's very charismatic. He has a lot of resources, like where those resources come from. I don't know. I would suggest that perhaps the CIA, but we don't really know. Um, and once he starts getting introduced to all of these high official people, it becomes a lot easier to talk to other people to say, oh, you know, I was hanging out with Walter Mondale last week or whatever. You know what I mean? It's it's like everyone sees that he's he's part of the Democratic Party establishment, none of whom question that he was a rabid right winger previously from a family involved in the KKK. He was involved in the John Bircher Society. How does this guy become a Democrat? And again, that also points to intelligence like sheep dipping where somebody is one thing and then becomes another thing for the purposes of destroying the thing so he's an infiltrator but again that that is definitely my speculation one thing about that and i'm, I'm glad you brought this up because i think this is interesting and is not often commented upon when uh jim jones is, is doing those speeches and he's talking about how the cia is going to come get us and you know they're uh uh, they're going to destroy us because we're we're trying to do this. We're trying to make this dream happen. A lot of those speeches sound to me uh, to have been um, based on speeches that were done by certain Black Panthers. So, in the in the Black Panther Party, there were some people who were heavily doctrinaire and heavily Marxist, like Huey Newton. If you ever heard Huey Newton give a speech. Um, he sounds like a professor, like a very angry professor, but he sounds like, a, you know, he's talking about 
things in terms of Marxist political realities. On the other hand, Bobby Seale, the other co-founder of the Black Panther Party, didn't really talk like that because uh, Bobby Seale was an organizer and his interest was in the people and getting them to get together so that they could educate themselves, you know, so that they could defend themselves against the police. Those are the things that he focused on. Huey Newton was much more theoretical. He would talk about things in a theoretical nature. I brought this up with Bobby Seale because I, I love uh, Huey Newton's PhD thesis is called War Against the Panthers. And it's one of my favorite things ever. And I talked about it with Bobby and he was a little bit dismissive. He said, you know, man, you got to understand that that's, that's a PhD thesis. Like Bobby sees that as being diff a completely separate thing from the real work of organizing. He's very practical. Well, I think Jim Jones is modeling his speeches after Huey Newton and other like H. Rap Brown and people like that, because he kind of sounds like those guys sometimes where he's talking about, you know, the, the internal political structures of the United States and the, you know, the pigs and the CIA is coming to get us. Right. And he named Richard Dwyer. He names him, he names him on the tapes, like the CIA station chief. Um, so I think that's very interesting too. And, 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 but it's like, it's like a crude copy. It's like, it's like when COINTELPRO made those coloring books that they were supposedly Black Panther coloring books and it would be like off the pig, right? And it was like super crude and they would mail it to the Jewish funders, to people who were very cultured, like Leonard Bernstein, um, to say, oh, this is what you're supporting. You're supporting this hate, you know? But it was done very crudely and stupidly. Uh, and I get that sense listening to Jim Jones that that's what that is, that it's kind of a, 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 a bad facsimile of Panther and other like leftist organizations. Um, yeah. Now with the people that were being convinced by Jim Jones or kind of involved in Jonestown, did they have any backgrounds that which i mean is there backgrounds available on any of them besides i know there's diaries and letters to family members and things that i've come across but i'm curious if anyone had some type of dissent from the government to be lured in by some type of because you listen to some of those speeches it does not i'm not saying i'm not attributing it to martin luther king but it sounds very activisty like and if you're saying the cia is after me then everyone's gonna be like, well, he must be doing something good, right? If they're trying to shut him down, they're shutting down the man. So I don't, maybe that's the political culture of the times back then, which seems like a seventies and sixties era. It seems like a lot of people were against the establishment, um, which I think now has changed to deep state, but there's a lot of people that had some views that were not very government uh, supportive. So I'm wondering if that kind of boosted up his, I guess, not admiration from his people, but Street cred. Yeah. No, I think that's the intent. I think that that is exactly the intent that he was doing right wing things before, but now he's doing left wing things before. But it's kind of it's, it's kind of phony. It doesn't really to me, it doesn't really play. Um, but absolutely. I think that's the model. I think the idea. And that's so when Donald Freed says this is the next step in Martin Luther King's evolution, um, that's what he's reacting to. Although, frankly, I've never met Donald Freed. I tried to meet him. 20 years ago. Um, but this is one of the questions I wanted to ask because I am a great admirer of because you know, secret honor is a great play and he knows like he knows this stuff. So how does he get hooked onto this? Like, I don't understand it. I, and I don't have a good answer for you. I don't have a good explanation as somebody who is 
sort of a, you know, has been a, a, a leftist organizer and has has done protests and this kind of thing. I, I don't see how this happens. It, it really blows my mind that anybody could have bought any of this stuff. I mean, like I say, May Russell sees it immediately, instantly. She takes one look at the guy and says, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this. And is able to therefore make a prediction before anything blows up and is on, is on anybody's radar. I mean, that's why May is May, and I guess that's why we're who we are, too. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 it seems impossible to me. What's your well? Let's say, what's your speculation on Jim Jones at the end when he starts wrapping everything up? Do you think someone got a hold of him and kind of either turned up the the the, the paranoid knob up to ten or something, or do you think that it was something else? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, and, and like I say, Gary said himself that he thought Mark Lane was the one who was doing it. That he'd seen Mark Lane, you know, sort of juicing him up about this stuff. But that leaves the question of Jim Jones. So is Jim Jones a willing CIA agent or intelligence agent of the United States who understands everything that's happening all the time? Or is he unwilling? Is he somebody who thinks that he's, you know, been told by Jesus or whatever to go do this stuff? Um, I don't know. Because there's all, that's, not all, that's not all the possibilities. There's also a third possibility, which is that he's both. You know, I think this happens to a lot of uh, like movie stars, for example, right? Like, let's take, I'm, I'm not going to pick on Tom Cruise. Let's say anything negative about Tom Cruise. But when people ask, why is he still a Scientologist? You have to understand that psychologically, when Tom Cruise became a Scientologist, he has had this incredible run of success, right? Tom Cruise has been in enormously successful movies. He continues to be a big, a huge star all over the world. Like only good things have happened. Why would he change that? Well, I mean, with Scientology, they, they have connections with Hollywood. I've done plenty of episodes with people who, you know, if you know Mike Rinder's story about being basically followed to his car and everything like that, his family is discommunicated for him. But um, there's they have connections to Hollywood. You got to think, I mean, Tom Cruise is like the all-star in Hollywood. Well, if you got all the major connections in there and Scientology is basically paving the way for you because you're their all-star. So it's like, same thing. Like, look at the Danny Masterson trial. Yeah. yeah. The reporting on that is so fucking slim. And it's because Scientology has tried to keep that as closed up as it possibly can. Yeah. So that's a minor version of, of what we're talking about. Like that's a, they don't have quite as much power. They're very substantial. I mean, you know, L. Ron Hubbard knew um, Alistair Crowley. And uh, in fact, to kick them out, it's a whole story. But um, but I, I'm not even talking about Scientology per se. I just use that because it's a big example. But this would apply to everyone. So if you talk to Matthew McConaughey, right, um, about the way his career has gone in the last 10 years, is he going to try to do the same things that he's been doing in the last 10 years? Yeah, because he's been hugely successful. And then you talk to somebody else like Pauly Shore, Polly Shore was hugely successful and then the bottom fell out and he's never been successful ever since. So he has to find reasons like he's devastated and traumatized by this. And he's tra desperately trying to find reason why the bottom fell out, but he has to do that kind of self-searching because he stopped being successful, but successful people don't ever have to do that. And it's the same thing with somebody like Jim Jones, like maybe he's an agent, but maybe he also thinks that he is blessed by God and that this is part of that being blessed. 
is that I get to do this. The reason why everybody's so nice to me and I get to hang out with Rosalind Carter is because I am touched by God for this purpose. And actually, again, going back to Graham Greene, uh, in a different way, a lot of his stuff is about that. They're about Catholic spies who are like traumatized. Um, and there's this weird mix of religion and duty and this idea that you're, you're doing good things for God and country. That could that could all be opportune. It also it may be that Jim Jones is simply a sociopath. There was uh, one of the reporters that had gotten onto him had written a story that Jim Jones was one of those guys who used to chop up animals and glue their body parts together when he was uh. a kid. I don't know if that's true or not. I've only seen that in one story. Um, but if so, that would be an indication that you're dealing with a sociopath. And maybe that's all he was his whole life. Again, I, I'm I'm sorry. When you go into this stuff, you don't always find like concrete black and white answers. Yeah, I, I appreciate your perspective more than I appreciate like, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that we're not going to know because there wasn't leads that were pursued whether it comes into any kind of these conspiratorial events or just weird controversial events in history. But I have to think with Jim Jones's position, after a while, you start believing the bullshit that you're spewing yep. out. Yep. And I would have to think if enough people were talking about leaving the camp. And I have seen letters of people that have written books about like wanting to leave the camp and some people that did leave. Um, that I have to think that if you know that you're losing the people that look to you at one point as a God or a voice of God, that that would, you try to do anything to make sure you make them stay. And if that causes something like being, you know, trying to do the suicide thing or the mass murder, whichever that, I mean, that's, that's my opinion. I mean, obviously I don't, you mentioned a few things. So the mass murder happens because of Leo Ryan, because it's no longer going to be, see if, if Jonestown continues operating, they are they have to investigate Jonestown now, right? There's going to be investigators coming. Yeah, but if it was a CIA thing, wouldn't the government do what they possibly could to make sure that it wasn't actually investigated properly? A congressman is dead now, right? This this isn't 2023. This is the late 70s. They they're going to have to come up with some kind of plausible story, because the public is going to see what. A congressman was machine gunned to death. We need to have so there's going to be investigations, there's going to be trials, they're going to be on television. No, they pulled, they chose to pull the plug on the whole operation at that point. They do not want people going in there. And like I say, there's a bunch of MK Ultra drugs. So what I think what part of the, what they're going to find is all the paperwork from all the experiments they've been conducting at Jonestown. And I, I don't think they want that stuff to get out. I mean, it, Richard, hey, Richard Helms burned most of it that had anything to do with MKUltra. So you know how the government considered this highly, 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 highly sensitive. Do you think that they destroyed all the documentation on MKUltra, like we say, or do you think that they know that they have some documents hidden somewhere or some backups? I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure there's, there's things, I mean, things have gotten out. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to like, keep all of that you know in one place things slip out here and there and we do have some and from artichoke too um but what we don't have is you know we know we're missing 95 percent of it you know and that probably is not recoverable 
I'm sure there's stuff in diaries and things that people like Stephen Kinzer, who I've had on the show, has been able to piece together. But I just have to think with something like that and money getting funneled in somewhere that they wouldn't just say like, oh, we destroy all all the documentation. I feel like you would have to keep it around because you have to think if someone like a researcher comes by, if you have no documentation on what you actually did over there, then any of the conspiracy talk that could be way worse than what you actually did. It's just, you know, that could be created and it's open gameplay if you say, oh, the MK Ultra stuff's destroyed. So I always think that if there is something that comes out that's like really, really like crazy conspiratorial, it's not real, it's more fantasy, then the government's like, actually, that's not true. It's like, well, how do you know that? And it's like probably because they got a backup of files to be able to tell you what's going on with that. I just don't think they're being transparent or honest when they're saying that they destroyed it all. There's no way. I don't believe that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly possible. Oh, I wanted to. To, I forgot to say one thing that I would like to bring up now because we were talking about it earlier and I said I was going to come back to it. Um, there, speaking of letters, when uh, Timothy Stone's parents were complaining uh, to Leo Ryan that they couldn't get in touch with their son, they, oh, sorry about that. That was an alarm on my phone. Um, when Timothy Stone... Uh, Stone's parents are complaining to Leo Ryan about Timothy Stone. Um, Harvey Milk writes this amazing letter in which he says that Timothy Stone's parents are uh, casting aspersions essentially on Jim Jones, who's a great man. And this is terrible. And you should stay completely out of this. So Harvey Milk wrote a long... The letter is so amazing that I just reproduced it in my zine, Harvey Milk's letter. Okay. And we know, like I say, that there's money that's being funneled from there to Jonestown during the whole time that he's there. And then Dan White kills Harvey Milk. Jonestown occurs on November the 18th. Harvey Milk is killed on November the 27th. But because of all this other stuff, the story is that Dan White was a sexually frustrated guy that was also on the board who, you know, went crazy when he ate donuts or whatever and killed Harvey Milk. The story is not that someone who was an intense defender of Jonestown is murdered nine days after the whole thing blows up. They're treated as unconnected events, but they may not be. It's entirely possible that Harvey Milk is part of this is part of the cleanup operation. And no one no one ever considers that. It's crazy for me because learning about this Harvey Milk like separate a year ago because I was interested in learning about political assassinations. And then you start realizing like there's a spider web that slowly connects them all by strings. I don't know. It's like a big revelation for me. Probably viewers aren't really getting that from it, but. Well, I would suggest that that's a possibility. But you'd have to look into what was actually going on with Harvey Milk and their ties with Jonestown to understand why that would be a possibility that you had to get rid of Harvey. Now, in your own perspective, what is some conclusions you've made when it comes to Jonestown? Besides a lot of the stuff you explained, but in your mind of a definitive, I think this is how this went and how this went that way. It doesn't have to be what the evidence or whatever... I just want your perspective on what you think this led to this and this led to that. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I think this is part and parcel of a program of destruction that begins in the, in the 60s um, to destroy the left. The same way that the Charlie Manson thing was to destroy hippie culture, yeah. make it all seem bad. Um, this there was a lot of the seventies became very popular with like EST and or EST and uh, different like programming stuff, silver mind control, all this crap, um, and and the new age movement. And I think this is part of that too, that the idea is to ruin any conception of leftist organization because it always ends up in death and destruction. Right. If you become a panther, you go to jail or you get murdered. You know, if you follow Martin Luther King, they're just going to get murdered. If you follow the Kennedys, they're just going to get murdered. If you try to create a commune, the commune, they're going to start killing people because they're crazy. Uh, or you start this other commune that's not even on the in the United States. Everything goes crazy because they they all kill themselves. The general idea is to paint all of this stuff as a being from the left and b being terrible. And it's very good cover because they're also at the same time, these are real experiments that are going on, just like Manson. I think there's real experimentation that's going on behind the scenes of everything else. And these guys, Jolly West and Ewan Cameron and Sidney Gottlieb and all these guys keep popping up all the time. And the reason they keep popping up all the time is because they're getting reported from all these different things that are happening, all these different experiments that are happening. And by the time we get to Morning in America to 1980, we're primed for Ronald Reagan to be a populist figure, which makes no sense from a class perspective, right? Ronald Reagan, the uh, Republicans in the 1980s, they essentially take a lot of the protections away from the people, uh, including stuff like Medicare and all. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. Um, and the way that they're able to get that stuff in is by making the left seem like a bunch of loons. And I think that continues to this day. So I do think that there's an overriding purpose, but that's not the only overriding purpose. All these things are multifaceted. There are always different things that are going on, but that's definitely part of it. They were, they were frightened by Kennedy. Kennedy really, really threw a, uh, a monkey, a monkey, or a, what am I trying to say? A monkey wrench into their plans because it became it, they became aware of the fact that you could have a liberal populist figure that the people would agree with and they wouldn't get their war that's the that's step one and then everything else flows on from there i'm gonna so make, of it. i'm gonna make a connection here just feel free if you don't agree tell me you don't agree but with the sirhan stuff he had rfk must die written multiple times over his in his journal and there's symbols too, weird little things that look like Aleister Crowley style things. Uh, do, apparently, he got that from watching something on the television, and they think that it was like some type of hypnosis or something might have triggered something or got him that way or brainwashed him that way. I don't know if you see the line I'm drawing, but I'm wondering if you're talking about Jim Jones being an asset to the CIA or something like that when it comes to mind brainwashing programs or something like that. If you're on television and you're giving a message out there, some people might not, because we only know some people are susceptible to it. Some of those people that joined in on it might've been susceptible to the brainwashing. Do you think it's similar? I think you're on a very good track. Okay, good. 
that I was is, afraid uh, to say that one. I was like, God, this one's going to end the conversation yeah, right here. That would be a long, that would be a long conversation that I would probably not do on air. That's fair. Uh, because you're the, uh, the level of speculation. It's not even speculation. It's just that when you've been researching something for, for a long time, you are able to spot certain little things certain little connections that tip you off that say, huh. And it, on an evidential level, I might not be able to make the case for something, but I might think, yeah, that's probably what's happening because of what I'm saying. One book that I would recommend anybody to read is called um, Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television by Jerry Mander. And that book will tell you a lot about how the mind works, but also how they viewed the research into the mind up until the point that that book was published and why television is not such a great thing for you to do, to spend a lot of time doing um, because it affects your brain among other things. But yeah, no, I think you're absolutely on the right track. I'm just examining this because I mean, you got to look at like, there's the Kennedy assassination. There's the RFK assassination. There's MLK's assassination. There's Malcolm X. There's John Lennon. And this is all like in like a 10, 15 year period. And it seems like it was just a tool that they used back then to get rid of certain figures that they deemed a threat to the security state. I mean, saying that, and I know that makes me sound like a leftist. I felt that when it came out. Uh, but no, I, it's just from what I'm looking at. I mean, we know about certain operations that go on in certain time periods, and it seems like they kind of just tweak and adjust their methods of whatever they're using now. And today's time is more character assassination. They'll just completely slander somebody in the news or have every at like so many things that got labeled during the pandemic and many other things politically that get labeled certain ways, whether it's true or not. It's just, you start looking at things like, okay, so here's the newer method. So now I'm examining this from Let's take the 60s and 70s. Once you start explaining like the like there's not that many lone assassins that just rolled around the street. It wasn't like it's just that time period. So there had to be something else more there. I mean, people can draw conclusions to the Abraham Lincoln assassination or they go, oh, what about Abe? That was a lone assassin. I was like, was it? No. Yeah. No, so you're, definitely- you're, you, you, you kind of examine this a little bit deeper. And I'm just now digging through so much documentation of the CIA and FBI on many various things. I mean. You had in that whole time period, even with the Manson stuff, like you just had a bunch of things going on where there was always one person, one. It had to be one figure. And I'm just like, that's the spectacle idea. Well, and it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And this is something that I like to tell people. It's like, let's say you're uh, investigating a liquor store holdup in which someone is killed. And it turns out that two people pulled off the liquor store holdup and they were both connected. And so they. They're in a conspiracy, right? You have no problem saying that there was a there was a conspiracy in this liquor store holdup in which a person was killed. Okay. The political value of that incident is zero. I mean, no offense to anybody who's ever been killed in such a thing. Obviously, that as a family person, they have an immense value, and everybody has infinite value as a human being, but on a political level, that's zero. Assassination of John F. Kennedy, political value 100, right? Um, there's no way that can be a conspiracy. So the more important and politically important a person is, the less chance there is that it's a conspiracy. That makes absolutely no sense. 
Like if you explain that to anyone, they would understand that immediately. That obviously, if you are a king or a president, it's much more likely that somebody is going to kill you in a conspiracy because there's always somebody who hates the president or the king, right? There's always going to be some faction. And in fact, the history of the world backs this up. Read any of Shakespeare's history plays. What are Shakespeare's history plays about? They're about conspiracies. They're trying to kill the king. Or they're trying to put their person, uh, marry this person to this person, and get rid of this other person because they want power. They want the throne. And that's the way hierarchies work. People are much more willing to kill for that reason than, you know, in a liquor store holdup. Well, there's just a lot of notions in society that we just don't question. We don't really question religious stuff as much, and we don't question the crazy factor. It's like when someone gets the – like Mark Chapman, after he shoots John Lennon, sits down on a curb and starts reading Catcher in the Rye, and then people go, well, he's just insane. People go, okay, because you can't explain insanity. Nobody can define a person's insanity. We can say somebody's insane, but you can't really go into the specifics of like, oh, his insanity leads to this, and this is why. That you can just start making mental gymnastics, basically, and nobody, the public, doesn't question. I think I'm more upset with the public than I am, uh, the government. I hate to. I mean, I, I have a problem with both. The public is poorly educated. I mean, that's the thing. That's why I don't. I mean, I get irritated, but I know that systematically. That, that is to say systems have been put in place to make sure that most people don't get very good education. Um, and even the word insanity, insanity is not really, I work in community mental health. We never use the word insanity. Insanity is basically only for use in legal proceedings. And it's to determine whether somebody knew the difference between right and wrong when they're uh, doing a particular action. But that, like I say, that's a legal definition. Um, when you talk about somebody like Mark David Chapman, um, you know that's that's what an insanity defense would come to. But is he insane? I mean, no psychiatrists don't talk like that. They don't talk about. They would talk about mental illness. They would talk about, you know, different things. And the thing about mental illness is that it's not. They, people think of it in terms of a label. You know, I have major depression. You know, or that person has schizophrenia. Um, but that doesn't really tell you a whole lot because. You've got this like you're on a loop, like somebody who has schizophrenia, um, they can be very, very um, symptomatic one day. And then the next day, they're not as symptomatic. The voices are really loud. The voices aren't as loud. You know, the voices are very insistent. They're, you know, I'm going through kind of a calm period. So it's not it's not a big label. It's not just, you know, this again, it's not black and white. It's always like percentages and and how that person was that day so it gets it gets really squirrely to talk about this stuff but then when you're talking about somebody like mark david chapman like he's reading the catcher in the rye um they don't mention that you know the guy who wrote the catcher in the rye is jd salinger who was in army counterintelligence corps in world war ii his job was to create propaganda uh he was working with henry kissinger in the counterintelligence corps. And if you read The Catcher in the Rye, the word kill appears every other page. So what does that mean? And also the fact that based on interviews with family members and friends of uh, Mark Chapman, he had no interest in Catcher in the Rye ever, never read the book once, and then somehow just has this in his person. So, and if you study um, code breaking, and you were kind of alluding to this earlier, it's like, if something was on television um, and let's say I go like this suddenly 
in a video, right? 99.9% .9 of people would just ignore that and say, it's nothing. Um, but maybe there's somebody who's been programmed that when I do this, they do something, you know, they engage in some activity in a kind of Pavlovian way. And we know that there was research into things like that. Now, there's a lot of people because we're in a in an age where everybody watches YouTube all the time, where it's gone completely in the other direction and they overanalyze, you know, they're watching the Spider-Man movie and they say, oh, look, the Spider-Man, he lifted his pinky in that one frame and that means this and this and that. So you can go completely on the other side overboard with it. But is it possible to have something that's on television or in a book that then triggers some type of reaction? Yes. What it is possible. When it comes to Jonestown, do you think that those two films that you mentioned earlier about Leonardo DiCaprio and the other one, do you think they're going to do it justice when it comes to actually getting to the truth, or do you think it's just going to be a reenactment of the official narrative? No. Why? 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 What would be their motivation to try to tell the truth? Why don't we have more films that separate from the official story on things that necessarily might not be true? Because they don't get funded. Why not? Well, that's a good question, but I tried to make one. I was part of a, uh, a production company for like five years that was trying to get a film made that was written by Adam Parfrey and that is wild as shit and would have been awesome. Um, and we weren't even looking for a lot of money. We had like a 20 million, 15, 20 million dollar picture that we we're trying to make. And that initially we had a green light for, and then we started to have a mess of problems and we never, you know, we never got released. Is that the King Kill 63? That was the documentary. The film was called Dallas and Wonderland. And um, and it would definitely it was definitely like a 70s type thriller, right? Um, but it's so much harder to get something like that made than anything else. And Oliver Stone, right? He got JFK made and he kind of got away with it because the movie was so successful. It made a ton of money. Um, but he also got enormous backlash. He you know, had all kind. Of, you know, Newsweek wrote a critique of the script, and not even the final script, like an early version of the script before the movie. The movie was barely in production, and they're already attacking him. So it's a lot harder to get something like that made. And I don't. I mean, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, do you really want to make a movie that's going to rock the boat that hard? He already did this thing with Scorsese, which apparently is going to be a truthful account of the um empire the of the summer moon the yeah that murders on the reservation um which more power to them I'm, I'm glad that they're doing that but there are limits like you you run into a hard barrier when trying well, to do so society will be pushing for that type of movie that leo's coming out with i think that's going to get a lot of traction because the way society has progressed in the past decade or so but i want to get the public on the discussion of the conspiracy stuff like we should be pushing for more you know, films that kind of look at other evidence or voices that don't agree with the official narrative. Like I'm still like, even with the nine 11 stuff. And I think the families bring up really, really good questions about things, um, Absolutely. but we don't have answers for, but like, it was me trying to explain like the JFK stuff or someone to someone who's not in that. And they just kind of do the eye roll thing. It, it, we got to get past that a little bit more, but I also think that the government hires people to go out there with disinformation. And some of these people come across that. And you come across people that think JFK was killed because of UFOs or JFK was killed. Um, or what was it? Jack Ruby didn't shoot Oswald. There's just some things where I go either someone like got into this and has a mental bend to them or 
they were given something and a lot of it could support that that seems like a secret document and we know the government creates fake documents for disinformation on certain things as well too so i mean that that's the confusion aspect again where there's now a divide and the people are caught in the middle how do we get them to the facts of the thing and get you to actually sit and have that discussion like me having a discussion with you on our first episode compared to now a lot different because I've been open now more to a lot of the political things and all this stuff. We can do that with regular people, but they have to get past like the first five minutes of here is this, that everything you ever learned before is wrong. And let me show you what gives you the more supporting evidence to hear. Like once I start telling people, I talk to a federal judge or someone like that who can say something different than the official narrative or that there's more going on. They go, well, that, uh, uh," and then they're starting to open up now to that. Now that there's a government title on that person, but I'm like, we got to do that with just people that if they have a document and they show you the document, then you should be willing to look at it and be like, okay, what else do you got to support your conclusions? And we don't really have any companies or corporations that are willing to pick up a movie or anything of that funding sort that shares that perspective, unless you say it's a conspiracy film. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a good example of that. The um, uh, Tom Cruise made a movie out of uh, Daniel Hopsicker's book, Barry and the Boys. Um, I mean, he didn't, I don't think they actually optioned the book, but essentially they were telling the story of Barry Seal and he made this like really goofy movie um, that is not very truthful. There, I get, I've had arguments about this kind of thing before because on the one hand, a lot more people get exposed to who Barry Seal is by watching this Tom Cruise movie. On the other hand, there's so much junk in it that you wonder if it's doing more harm than good. It's like, uh, um, and because it's it's got so much really stupid stuff in it, and the tone is all wrong for the, that kind of movie. Um, but it did okay; it made its money, you know. Um, but maybe that also buries the story, and less people are going to look at Daniel Hopsucker's work because of that. I don't know, uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 really hard. And you're you're a perfect example. You're right. Like when you were first starting out this stuff, your questions were kind of all over the place. Um, and as you've been doing this more, like in this conversation your your questions are much more focused because you kind of know what to ask like you've started to learn the structure of how these things work i mean after you've done after you had done like four or five interviews with jfk researchers you already knew more than 99 percent of the public conversation but now a year and a half later or whatever you know vastly more than the average person and just by talking to people and and getting out there and and learning how these things work. I think everyone has a deciding line on certain things, especially with the JFK stuff, especially with the RFK stuff, especially with any of these events. There's a deciding line where people kind of go, I can't get with that or I can get with that. And I I think I know where those lines are a little bit more, but everything is still very blurred because the government hasn't been very transparent on a lot of things. Like I think just the ability to question in general should just stem from the fact that they haven't released all full documentation on exactly the event or whatever's in question. I mean, that should get anybody being like, okay, that there's obviously something they don't want you to know. And the term national security is just like labeling somebody insane, insanity or something like that. It's a great way for people to go, okay, well, they know. And it's like, well, if you're accusing the people of doing the act, then they're not going to give you the documentation on it. And they're going to branch it with national security or classified information. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Joe, you've given me enough of your time, man, but is there a place where people can find your links? And I really do appreciate our chats. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Uh, uh, Joe Green, JFK, um, the uh, Hidden History Center, say something real press, but you can get to everything through Joe Green, JFK. Okay, I'm going to link all those in there. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.